Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we are picking up here again with the story of Belle Starr, one of the most notorious female outlaws of the Old West, who's been called the Bandit Queen and the female Jesse James. And she's been credited with robbing stagecoaches, holding up ranchers while dressed as a man, and leading her own band of outlaws. But as we discussed in the last episode, a lot of these stories about her may have just come from the public's desire for intrigue-filled adventure tales of the Wild West. Regardless, though, these stories bled into a number of biographies and so-called official accounts of her life. They became true, almost. But more recent accounts have contradicted a lot of these stories. For example, we mentioned in the last episode that some people have thought that Belle's daughter, Pearl, was fathered by the famous outlaw Cole Younger. And even sources like Encyclopedia Britannica say that this is, quote, probable. But then other works like Margaret Rowe's biography, Belle of the West, which have looked into letters and court records, those sort of things, say that that's most likely not the case. So what we've been doing is recounting Belle's life and some of those better known stories and the differing takes on them. And what we're trying to do is look into where some of the wilder ones came from, maybe how they came about. And the hopes are that perhaps by understanding her character and seeing what primary sources can corroborate with some of these stories, you can at least get close to what her real story truly is. So we'll rehash part one a little bit. So far, we've talked about her childhood, her work as a spy during the Civil War, and her family's harboring of outlaws in Texas, and that tumultuous marriage to the outlaw Jim Reed. And what we've really seen from all of this is that even if Belle herself wasn't a criminal, she was always really spunky. She was an outspoken girl with a quick temper, and she associated very closely with a lot of outlaws. So already it's kind of easy to see how her personality would have lent itself quite nicely to this whole persona of the bandit queen. It it makes sense. When we left off in part one, it was August of 1874, and we were getting another taste of that spunkiness. A man named John Morris had just killed Reed and then asked Belle, who at this point was still going by her given name, Myra Maybell, to come identify the body so that he could collect the bounty. So Myra Mabel shows up, sure enough, but she looks at Reed's body and says that she's never seen him before and then told Norris, and you'll remember this dramatic quote from the end, (laughs) you will never get that bounty. So something was going on here, maybe some strange loyalty to Reed or an us against them. Outlaws against the law. Exactly. So... It's unclear if the story is true, but either way, plenty of people could identify Reed for Morris. So Morris got his share of the bounty after all, though not the full amount since he didn't bring in Reed's full gang. After Reed's death, though, Myra Maybell really did struggle for a while. Jim's death had left her pretty much broke, except for that land her father had given her. And it was hard for a woman in those days to make a living on her own, too. And she had the kids to think about. So she rented her farmland and briefly tried to push Pearl into a stage career because she'd seen other children become quite successful that way. Little girl performers, in particular, were very popular in the frontier town. So Myra Maybell took Pearl to Dallas, enrolled her in school and acting classes there, but Pearl ended up getting sick, and so the doctor recommended she avoid the stress of performing. In the meantime, though, Myra Maybell's father had passed away, and her mother sold the farm and moved to Dallas with Eddie, so it really seemed like hard times for the family. 
According to Rao's work, some Bell Star biographers paint this time in Dallas as a really wild time for her when she spent all of her time guzzling whiskey in saloons and using her feminine wiles to scam money off of unsuspecting wealthy men. She also supposedly caused a lot of public disturbances, shooting off her guns in the street, much like she did when she was a kid. But Rao actually points out that local newspapers never once mentioned Myra Maybell in conjunction with events like these, even though they pretty much covered everything that was going on at the time and would even embellish stories to make them more comfortable. So it seems unlikely that this really happened since she's sort of conspicuously missing from these sorts of accounts. Well, and it definitely also seems like Myra Maybell was mostly focused on Pearl during this time in Dallas, because after it was clear the stage career wasn't going to happen, she sold her farm and she set off on a tour of visits to old Carthage friends in Missouri and Arkansas and Kansas. And during this journey, she ended up leaving Pearl for a time to stay with a longtime friend along the way. By 1879 or so, she'd gone to Joplin, Missouri, and met gambler Bruce Younger, Cole Younger's cousin. She found him exciting, and they started up a fling. Their relationship was actually pretty scandalous, too, not just because they were unmarried and because Bruce was considered kind of a good-for-nothing sort of guy, but also because they were staying at the same hotel. And some people spread rumors that they were even staying in the same room. Mm -hmm. The hotel owner, however, confirmed that Myra Mabel did, in fact, have a room of her own, and her mom and sometimes even Pearl would come and visit her there. Whatever the exact living situation was, though, she eventually got tired of it and decided to move into Indian Territory and visit her late husband's business associate, Tom Starr. And Bruce Younger accompanied her there and, according to Rao, must have told her at some point that he would marry her, or at least Myra Maybell expected this to happen, because records show that she went ahead and changed Pearl's last name from Reed to Younger. But after a while, Bruce just got bored of Indian Territory and headed off for North Kansas. And according to Rao's account, Myra Mabel was just furious at this because he'd essentially ruined her reputation. I mean, they had traveled there together uh, by taking off without marrying her. So Rao recounts a popular story of how she got back at him, saying that Myra Mabel followed him to Kansas on horseback, went to the courthouse and got a marriage license. And then she found a justice of the peace and tracked down Bruce. Holding a gun to his head, she told him she'd blow his brains out if he didn't marry her right away in front of 20 witnesses. So, of course, Bruce went along with it. It's a real shotgun wedding. Exactly. And after that, she ordered a beer for everyone, or beer in general for everyone. I think she ordered a keg or something, and then just (laughs) took off, didn't stay for the party herself, just took off back to Indian Territory. So that sounds like kind of an outlandish story, the type of thing that would be more on the legend side of Bell Star's life. But there really is record of the two of them getting married in Kansas on May 15th, 1880. So there you go. Could happen. She obviously wasn't too hung up on Bruce Younger, though, because just three weeks later, there's record of Myra Maybell marrying someone else, and that's Sam Starr, the good-looking 23-year-old three-quarter Cherokee son of Tom Starr, whom we mentioned earlier. She was probably 32 at the time that she listed her age in the Cherokee Nation court records as 27. She also apparently completely ignored the fact that she had just married Bruce Younger. Her last name was listed in the marriage records as Reed still. 
and it was after she married Sam that she started going by the name Bell Star. So because of Sam's Cherokee status, they could, of course, apply for a free parcel of land on Indian territory, which you couldn't do uh, as a white person unless you were married to a Cherokee. So they settled on an area bordering the Canadian River that was surrounded by cliffs that contained several caves. And it was, according to Rao, known as Younger's Bend because the Youngers had gone there to strategize during the Civil War, although other sources suggest Tom Starr named it that because he really admired their gang. That's kind of a strange hypothesis to me, just because his wife dated two of the brothers. Yeah, although if you remember from the previous podcast, the whole Cole Younger thing was just a rumor. True, so true. he might not have been too upset about Maybe it. Maybe Sam didn't even know about that. Maybe he didn't. So the other thing about Younger's Bend was that it was also 70 miles from Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is the nearest U.S. court, which becomes significant later on in the podcast. And they moved into a little cabin there, and they set up this nice life for themselves. Sam tended to cattle and horses and grew corn and hunted game and really filled that responsible, masculine role in Bell's life that Jim Reed never really did. If you remember, he was just more focused on his outlaw adventures <laughs> and wasn't come, kept him on the run and wasn't really around. And so Sam and at Sam and Bell, they brought Pearl up to live with them. And even though Bell had acquired this idyllic sort of life, Bell didn't stay completely out of trouble. No, much like her parents' home in Texas, Sam and Bell Younger's Bend home became kind of a refuge almost for outlaws. Jesse James was one of the first to hide out with them. He stayed with them for a couple weeks while there was a $10,000 bounty on his head. Uh, James ended up dying not long after that, after taking a gunshot to the back. And according to Rao again, rumors of his stay at Younger's Bend got out after his death. And this just really added to Bell's reputation as an outlaw herself. After you entertain Jesse James, I mean, what are you going to do? But Bell didn't necessarily want to be thought of in that way. She didn't want to be connected to somebody like Jesse James, at least publicly. She later wrote, quote, On the Canadian River, I hope to pass the remainder of my life in peace. For a short time, I lived very happily with my little girl and husband, but it became noised about that I was a woman of notoriety from Texas. And from that time on, my home and actions have been severely criticized. My home became famous as an outlaw ranch long before I was visited by any of the boys who were friends of mine. Bell's own behavior didn't always reflect this desire for peace, though, even though it really sounds like that's what she wanted. In the spring of 1882, for example, she got involved in kind of a shady situation involving horses. The exact details of that situation, as you might imagine with a topic of this nature, they differ quite a bit depending on what source you're looking at. But basically, Bell and Sam had corralled some of their horses on a neighbor's land. And suddenly the neighbor realized that a couple of the horses they had belonged to other people who lived in the neighborhood. And he pointed that out to them. But Sam and Belle didn't listen and didn't really return the horses either. Didn't react in an innocent kind of way. Like, what a mistake. Exactly. Let's rectify the situation. Let me give these back or let me explain why these horses look exactly like these other people's horses. No, none of that. So by July 31st, 1882, Belle and Sam were charged with horse stealing. Then, on November 7th, 1882, they both appeared in district court at Fort Smith, and their trial was set for February or March of 1883. 
and a judge we mentioned in the Bass Reeves podcast, the hanging judge Isaac C. Parker, presided over their trial. He got his scary nickname, if you'll remember, from the tough sentences that he used to hand out, but he took it easy on Bell and Sam since it was their first conviction. So Sam was sentenced to 12 months and Bell to two six-month terms in the House of Correction in Detroit. And Sam did mostly hard labor while he was locked up, but Bell really became a model prisoner. She helped tutor the other female inmates who were pursuing an education, since, of course, she was very well educated. According to Richard Arnott's article in Wild West, which we mentioned in the previous podcast, she even charmed the warden into making her his, quote, assistant. So she did pretty well for herself while she was in prison, but both Sam and Bell ended up having their sentences shortened to nine months, and they were released around Christmas 1883. So after being convicted of something as serious as horse stealing, Bell really didn't want to get in trouble like that again, and she kind of made a promise to her daughter Pearl that she wasn't going to get into any trouble like that again. In fact, she sent Pearl a letter before serving her sentence that said, I shall be away from you a few months, baby, and have only this consolation to offer you, that never again will I be placed in such humiliating circumstances. I mean, I have to think she thinks a little bit of Pearl's father, too, and how he was so absent from the family because he was always getting in trouble and didn't want to be another parent like that. Yeah, and it may be also that she's thinking a little bit of her family name. I remember remember she came from this well-to-do kind of Southern family, and she may be thinking, yes, I've been locked up now. I want to change my ways. So when Belle got out of prison, she really did seem to do her best to keep this promise. Tom Starr had kept up Younger's Bend for them, and she and Sam took care of the spring planting, and they brought both kids, Pearl and Eddie, up to live with them. Belle even planted a flower garden, and she was also a model neighbor. According to Rao, she was known for attending to the sick in her area. Even people she had had altercations with, people she didn't really like that much, she would rush to their side if something was wrong and really help out wherever she could. She still had a restless, wild side to her, though. She would apparently take frequent trips to visit friends to satisfy that, and she couldn't connect with the other women who lived in their neighborhood. That was kind of one disconnect that she had with everyone around her because they weren't as educated as her. So when she would see one of the women coming to visit her and chat for a while, she would sometimes just, I guess, head out the back door with a book and (laughs) hide somewhere until they had gone away. Well, and of course, she also still had a bit of a soft spot for outlaws. She really admired them for the way that they lived life in their own terms. And they were always, always welcome to visit in her home. So if she saw an outlaw coming, she wasn't heading out the back door with a book. But living like this, Bell managed to stay out of trouble for at least a year. But then trouble caught up with her again in the form of the outlaw John Middleton. And he was wanted for horse theft and murder and found his way to Younger's Bend. And Bell had probably met him through her earlier travels, maybe in Arkansas even. And Middleton ended up hiding out around Bell's property until about April 1885. And then when the star's cabin was raided that spring, Middleton realized it was just too dangerous to stay there. I mean, if you start to get too much of a reputation as an outlaw's hideout, the law's going to come there, too. So Bell came up with a pretty clever plan to get Middleton out of the area. 
she would take off on one of her trips to Arkansas. That was how the plan was going to be Just a arranged. normal trip for yes. her. Taking Pearl along with her, and they'd travel by covered wagon, and Middleton would hide in the back of the wagon. Sam and Eddie were to travel along behind them for at least part of the journey. And then when the coast was clear, Pearl would lend Middleton her horse, and he would take off. So everything went as planned at first, but then Middleton somehow managed to offend Pearl. They got in an argument, and she would not loan him her horse. So Belle, at the last minute, had to track down another horse for him and ended up buying the sorry old mare that was blind in one eye. Not a good getaway horse. No. So as you would imagine, Middleton is not happy about this at all, but he took the horse and fled anyway. And that horse, covered in mud and still wearing Pearl's saddle, apparently she wouldn't loan him the horse, but she would loan him her saddle, <laughs> was still it was spotted a few days later without the rider. After a search, Middleton's body was found. He drowned trying to cross a swollen river on the horse. Authorities also discovered something that would mean even more trouble for Belle. The person who had sold her that horse, that sorry old mare, was not the owner. It was a stolen horse. Stolen one-eyed horse. So Belle was charged with larceny and a warrant was issued for her arrest in January 1886. She ended up turning herself in at Fort Smith and her trial was set for September. And these events really just stoked the rumors surrounding Belle. According to Rouse's book, newspapers had a field day with the situation and were coming up with all kinds of theories about her, including pretty salacious ones that she had been Middleton's mistress and that she ran a gang of cattle thieves. But in the meantime, Sam, who seemed so domestic a little earlier in the episode, wasn't really helping matters very much. He'd already been implicated in the holdup of a U.S. mail hack. And then in February 1886, he was accused of being one of three men who robbed several farm settlements. So again, a witness identified another one of the three, the three who robbed these farm settlements, as a woman dressed as a man, specifically as Belle Starr. So Belle suddenly had some heat on her. Yeah, she's wanted, her husband's wanted. Sam managed to evade the authorities for a while. I mean, they were in Younger's Bend, but remember they have these caves all those around. caves all around them to hide in. So he somehow manages to get away every time they come around looking for them. But Belle was arrested for the crime in mid-May. And it's while she was in Fort Smith entering her not guilty plea for this crime that she kicked off another legend about herself. She had her photo taken that May with a murderer called Blue Duck. According to both Rao's work and Arnott's article, this is really the only time she ever met Blue Duck. But the fact that they're in this photo together gave biographers an excuse to link her to him, suggesting that she may have been his mistress and that she even retained an attorney who helped him avoid the death sentence. And I couldn't help wondering here, since I end up mentioning Linsome Dove in so many of these Wild West episodes, because things remind me of him. Uh, Blue Duck is, is of course, the famous murderer and the kidnapper in Lonesome Dove. And I wondered a little bit if maybe this Blue Duck was some sort of inspiration for that character. I think that may be likely. And I think it's also easy to see how, even though she didn't know this person, another, again, it's an affiliation with an outlaw, an affiliation with a notorious character, um, even through just a picture that helped add to Belle's Reputation. Well, and an outlaw of a different sort, maybe, mm-hmm. than some of the earlier men she'd been hanging out with. Maybe were, a worse sort. Yeah, a worse, more disturbing, more psychotic kind of sort. 
Just a side note, there was another famous photo taken around this time, that of her wearing a riding costume sitting side saddle on a horse. And if you Google Belle Star, you may actually see this. It's a pretty interesting photo to look at. But Belle had her own legal matters to attend to, of course, and she had at this point been indicted for two crimes and had to stand trial for both over the next couple of months. But she wasn't convicted in either. Ultimately, that initial horse theft that she went to prison for was the only thing that she ever served time for. But she had some pretty serious family matters to deal with at this point. She returned to Indian Territory and found Sam still trying to avoid the authorities, had been shot and badly wounded. And she finally convinced him to turn himself in, thinking that it would just be safer if he did so. But before his trial date actually came around, Sam got into a confrontation with the same neighbor who'd initially gotten him and Belle in trouble for horse theft. And Sam and the neighbor ended up shooting each other dead. December 17th, 1886. So that was a big blow to Belle, not just because she lost her husband, but without Sam in the picture, she no longer had a legitimate claim to her land, but she really liked her land. She loved the home that they'd built there and she really wanted to stay. So she had to think of a creative way of solving that problem. And she did just that. And the answer was marrying 24-year-old Bill July. You sometimes see his name as Jim July or Jim Starr. I think he went by different uh, aliases or nicknames. And he was a Creek Indian who was an adopted son of Tom Starr. That didn't solve all of Belle's problems, though. Her kids were going through some stuff as well. Her son, Eddie, who was almost 17 when Belle remarried, didn't accept her new husband at all. I think that he had really connected with Sam, and when this new guy came into the picture, who was only a few years older than him, he he just wasn't having it. And Pearl had been dating a young man that Belle didn't approve of because his family wasn't wealthy, so that created kind of another issue, in an issue in which Belle doesn't really come up looking that great. Well, no, and, and the deal with Pearl really got out of hand because when the boy asked for Pearl's hand in marriage, Belle turned him down and then sent Pearl away to visit friends. And then while Pearl was gone, she concocted a fake letter to the boy from Pearl saying that Pearl had married she, Pearl, had married somebody else and signed Pearl's name to it. So tricking this kid, he ended up being so hurt that he went off and married another girl. Learning about her former boyfriend's marriage really crushed Pearl, but eventually both she and this man learned what had happened, and they saw each other a few times secretly. Pearl ended up getting pregnant and leaving home to live with her Reed family because Belle was so angry. She wanted her to give up that baby because the whole point was that she wanted her to marry someone else. She wanted her to marry someone with money, someone who had a future. So I just think this is interesting because throughout Belle's life story, this is, seems to be one of her redeeming qualities is that she loves her kids, especially Pearl, it seems. You know, she's really a devoted mother. But this story just makes her seem really controlling and kind of diabolical. Yeah, it got out of hand, clearly. But trouble with law kept on following them, too. So Belle had more than just these family problems to worry about. She tried to avoid it, but in June of 1887, Bill July was arrested and indicted for horse theft. And in July of 1888, her son Eddie was charged with the same thing. So it was just, everybody was Everybody was an outlaw now. They weren't just harboring them. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, Belle was renting out the land near Younger's Bend to various farmers. She'd entered into a rental agreement with a Mr. Edgar Watson. 
but then later found out through his wife that he was wanted for murder in Florida. And at this point, she really was not interested in harboring random fugitives anymore, especially ones that weren't part of her family or her friends, because she didn't want to face arrest or trial herself. So she tried to back out of this deal with Watson, but since she'd already accepted payment from him, he would not budge. So finally, she sort of obliquely, or maybe not so obliquely, threatened him, saying, quote, I don't suppose the United States officers would trouble you, but the Florida officers might. And that really did it. Uh, Watson was furious, and he did leave. He settled on another farm nearby, but he was very, very upset about this. And then on February 2nd, 1889, Bell accompanied her husband part of the way to Fort Smith, where he was going to stand trial for those horse theft charges. And after doing a little bit of shopping, she headed back home the next day, stopping at a neighbor's place for a bit to eat and socialize along the way. After she left the neighbor's house, she headed back toward Younger's Bend on horseback, and when she turned onto the river lane that would take her back home, she was shot at least twice, causing her to fall from her horse. Neighbors discovered her and came to her side, but she died there on the lane. Most people, of course, suspected Watson of being the one who shot Belle. He, as we mentioned, had that grudge against her, and the shooting happened right near the farm where he was living at the time. There were even tracks from the scene that led toward his cabin, but the trail ended before they got to the building, so they couldn't definitively prove it. According to Rao, the murder weapon later on even turned out to be one of his guns, but ultimately, even though Watson was jailed for the crime, he had his lawyer's help and was able to convince a judge that all of the evidence was completely circumstantial. There were no witnesses around, so there was nobody to prove otherwise. And there are a few other potential suspects, too, including July. Bell had supposedly caught him having an affair with a Cherokee girl. And then Eddie and Pearl, too, just because things had gotten so rough with, with their whole situation. Yeah, Eddie and Pearl were both unhappy because of fights that she'd had with both of them. Obviously, Pearl had the whole relationship situation and the baby that wasn't accepted into her family. But they were there for Bell in the end. There was a funeral for her, to which the family and several outlaws came to pay their respects. I mean, even though she was a controversial figure, she had a lot of friends and a lot of people who who came to her funeral. Later, Pearl had a stone wall erected around Belle's grave, and there was a headstone that read, Shed not for her the bitter tear, nor give the heart to vain regret. Tis but the casket that lies here, the gem that filled it sparkles yet." So after Belle's death, her fame really started to spread far and wide and pretty quickly, too. Rao notes that it started with an obituary sent by the Fort Smith newspaper, The Elevator, to several newspapers in the eastern United States. And many of the papers just ignored the obituary. You know, who is this random lady from the West? But the New York Times ran it under the headline, quote, A Desperate Woman Killed. And parts of it read, Belle is the wife of Cole Younger. Jim Starr, which is spelled incorrectly, her second husband, was shot down by the side of Bell less than two years ago. Bell Starr married Cole Younger directly after the war, but left him and joined a band of outlaws that operated in the Indian Territory. She had been arrested for murder and robbery a score of times, but always managed to escape. So that definitely built up the Bandit Queen legend, and things just kind of spiraled from there. An editor and publisher named Richard K. Fox saw the New York Times obituary, got interested, and by 1889, he'd written a paperback called 
Belle Star, the Bandit Queen, or the female Jesse James. And most now seem to consider Fox's work as having been largely fictionalized. But for years, a lot of people regarded it as biography. Later writers, including William Harmon, who wrote a book about Judge Parker in 1898, even used Fox's book as a source material for their own accounts of Bell's life. And later on, two movies, including the 1941 film Bell Star, compounded this sensationalized take. Actually, if you look up pictures of Bell Star, you're going to find that side saddle one and then a lot of movie pictures. Yes. Um, finally, though, in the 1980s, researchers started trying to get at her real story. You know, what was behind this obviously fictional obituary and the later admittedly fictionalized accounts of her work and interviewed her descendants and looked into legal records and letters for clues, you know, trying to find out what really happened. And it's still kind of hard to get quite at who she was, but it seems like even if she wasn't truly an outlaw queen, she certainly did have an outlaw spirit. Yeah, she had outlaw potential. She did. It seemed like she had conflicting desires to be a um, a ranch wife and be a bandit queen. <laughs> yes. And uh, I think that's kind of summed up in, in this quote that I like from Belle that she gave to a reporter uh, a couple years before her death. She said, I regard myself as a woman who's seen much of life. And I think no matter what's true and what's fiction about her, that's kind of hard to deny. Well, and she's almost the kind of person who you like to imagine there are some of these accounts that we'll just never know about. I mean, it does add to a person's legend if they're still a little obscure after all of this research that's been put into them. That's very true. Well, that's all about all we have on Belle's life, on Belle Star's life. Um, if you would like to... I don't know, maybe add your own Bell Star stories to the mix or give us your best fictionalized account of Bell Star that we haven't looked into or mentioned yet or the, your favorite movie of the Wild West. We were talking about Westerns earlier today, so I'm curious as to ones that people like because I'm always wondering which ones I should check out. I didn't watch a lot of them well, in my youth. We'll need to check out the Bell Star movie. We'll have to check out the Bell Star movie. I actually haven't seen that. So if you have any suggestions like that for us, or just any suggestions at all, maybe you don't have anything that's Wild West, but you just want to request a different sort of episode, feel free to write us. We are at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com, or you can look us up on Facebook, and we're on Twitter at Mist in History. And appropriately enough for a story about a woman who was on the run some of her life, we do have an article on bounty hunting. Uh, well, you can imagine, again, Belle saying, I don't know who he is, and you'll never get that <laughs> bounty. Um, you can think all of that while you read our article, How Bounty Hunting Works, by searching for it on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.